A generation of Brits who came here as children have been facing the threat of deportation from the UK. They went to British schools, they worked British jobs, they built British lives. But recently, some were denied healthcare, lost jobs, were detained and faced being thrown out of their country. They are the Windrush generations. They say patience is a virtue But I can wait as long as you do for a chance Call me insane but that's my end Hello and welcome back to Untelevised, the podcast. The podcast where we explore all things social change. And that means looking at the world around us and what it is currently. Thinking about what we might want it to be and then exploring how we get from one point to the other. How do we bring about that change? And an important part of that is looking at what part we all play in that journey. My name's Fiseo and I'm one of your hosts and my co-host sitting next to me today is Mona and every day is Mona. How are you Mona? Well, every recording day we're not just glued to yeah, each that, other that's, all the time every that's day. That's an important no, no. point of yeah, clarity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes definitely sat here today. Um, yeah yes um, just such a like meaty series that we're sort of trying to kind of unpick and um, kicked it off um, last week with kind of exploring movement and, and what that means in, in terms of our relationship to land. And I think today trying to kind of ground ourselves maybe mm. a little bit. We were moving a lot last last time and um, this time we're looking at actually the opposite of, I guess, moving from land is what does it mean to belong to land? Um, and I deliberately say that we belong to land as opposed to what it just means that land belongs to us um, and actually what the distinction is there and how much more nuanced that is than just a sort of piece of paper that says that something is contractually yours. Yeah, exactly. It's exploring that both when sort of like you're newly settled to a space, so a space that's new to you, or even if it's a space you've always been, but feel somewhat disfranchised from. And what I love about our conversations this week is we're also getting both a rural perspective and an Mm. urban perspective. So again, quite contrasting experiences, but both exploring how we might feel a sense of belonging um, to, to a space, to a physical space. And where does that come from? And why is it important? And all of those, um, questions that come along with that yeah definitely and getting sort of a bit across the across Britain and you know we're hearing from the north and from Wales and from places that are also less um familiar to us um I I only just myself went to Wales for the first time in the last like few months um, and suddenly made it there twice in in a very short proximity of time but you know real like yeah exploration of, of close and far and but at the same time seeing that the themes the subjects the emotions they don't really seem to differ, um, actually, mm. no matter kind of where we, how far afield we go or how close to home we we go. And um, interestingly as well, that we do come across a lot of the same, which is great. There are themes emerging, but, you know, we a lot of our guests, even if we start somewhere different, I feel like we often end up with some very mm. similar c- conclusions, but from a sort of completely different perspective. 
Yeah, it's somewhat reassuring, isn't it? Because it essentially shows that there is a solution and we're constantly being reaffirmed. So all we really need to do is now start acting and I'll let you wait until the share section for, for us to give you our tips on that. But for now, um, as it always goes, let's jump into our learn and define some of the key terms that will help us understand the conversations this week. So... This week, um, I speak with Javier, who is in a very similar field of work um, to myself. He works with displaced people, um, young refugees and asylum seekers in Wales, um, but kind of on the, I guess, supposedly the tail end of their journey when they've actually reached their end destinations, um, where they've reached the UK, they've supposedly reached safety. And then what does it mean to give them a life here and give them a sense of, of belonging? But to frame that conversation, um, it seems very important to de define a lot of terms that get used to describe, I guess, sort of displaced people, many of which are sort of actually legally slightly different terms. So first of all, displaced people is not a legal term. That is, that is a social or political term that literally refers to people, as you can guess, who have been displaced, um, who are not living where they originally lived who've been forced to move who've been moved away from where they belong it's quite deliberate I guess that we're referring to it as displaced because that sounds almost like as though it's not meant to be like that as opposed to just that you chose to go on holiday for example so the displaced people is kind of the catch-all phrase in some senses now within that the actual legal terms you might have heard a lot is First of all, asylum seeker, you know, a person seeking asylum. Now, that is the first stage of the process when somebody reaches um, a country where they are asking sort of to be protected. They're asking for safety because they're fleeing something which is threatening their lives, be that war, be that oppression, um, et cetera, et cetera. So when people first arrive here in the UK or various other, you know, let, let's say European countries, for example, they seek asylum. Now, that is before their case has been processed and this government has said, yes, okay, we accept your claim, we accept your case, and we will allow you to have refuge here. So that's the absolute first step. As an asylum seeker, you don't have the rights that the rest of us have in this country. You can't work, you can't claim benefits, you can't vote. You know, you, you basically are sort of still held in limbo whilst the government decides if you're allowed to access those things in this country, if your claim is so-called valid enough. And then if your case is considered so quote unquote valid and our government says, okay, fine, we will grant you protection and we do think you have the right to be here, that's when you become a refugee. So they are different legal statuses. Now, a refugee is not a citizen, but a refugee is given in the first instant five years to remain and then that gets reviewed again and again after five years until you might be able to claim your citizenship. But while you're a refugee, you do have the right to work. You do have the right to claim benefits. You don't, I believe, still have the right to vote. I might have to actually go check that. But you get some more rights and you are somewhat, you know, allowed into the systems of our society. So those are the main two. You will then hear the word migrant. Um, now, a migrant is actually just somebody who has migrated from one place to another, but not necessarily because they're fleeing something. That could just be somebody who before the days of Brexit, maybe lived in Spain and decided to come live in the UK. They would be a migrant. Um, 
not a refugee or an asylum seeker. Now, there is one final term that I won't sort of dwell on too much, but that you might also hear in this context, which is expat, which technically, and this term is incredibly politically contested because technically an expat is actually also a migrant. It's somebody who's gone to live in another country, but very often we use it to describe usually people who've moved from the West or the global North, as we defined it previously in this podcast, to the global South. Um, so it's technically from sort of more developed, quote unquote, countries to, to developing countries. So often we refer to people who work for the UN or who are diplomats or, you know, have gone to live in Africa, but they're from Europe or the US. We refer to them as expats, um, which I'm sure you can all understand why that seems somewhat, you know, complex and quite dubious. But essentially, they've also just migrated for work, but migrated in what we might consider the opposite direction to what we're used to. I think that hopefully gives some context, certainly into Javier's work and what he discusses. So... As you just heard all those terms, they are all very relevant to the conversation that I had um, this week. I spoke to Javier Sanchez Rodriguez, who is himself somebody who has experienced displacement and migration. Um, he is originally from the peasant indigenous um, communities of Colombia. Um, within his own country, he experienced displacement and then he also came with his family to the UK at the age of 15. Um, and then even within the UK has had to move between quite a lot of different countries. So that's sort of part of his background. He is a social change activist, a land activist, um, a community worker, a youth worker, and has been for over 20 years. He references his youth work in particular a lot in our conversation. He now works with something called the Anne Matthews Trust, which is a collective of individuals from diverse backgrounds who work towards social justice. Um, they see themselves as an anti-racist organization who are fighting inequality, discrimination, and oppression. And they work particularly with young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds who've experienced displacement and who are now trying to build some sort of community and belonging here in the UK, very specifically in Wales. Um, Javier is involved in like running a space, um, a big bunkhouse, a 450 year old building in the village of Corris in mid Wales, just on the edge of the Snowdonia National Park. And this is a space that really embodies the idea of what it means to sort of build community, to go beyond land just being ground and soil and four walls and somewhere to kind of drop your bags, but actually a place to build community and to give belonging to anybody and everybody. For me personally, um, land is much more than just a plot of land where you grow things. Land is where we come from. Land is is our, is our genesis. Land is where we humans uh, emerge from. We are made of, of of the earth of 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 that. That's where we come from. That's where where we emerge. And so. In that aspect, in the cosmological aspect of things, of the spiritual aspect of things, land for me um, has a big connotation as my mother, as where I come from. In the political sense of things, I've, I, I would say what many have said, 
without land, there is no freedom. In order to have freedom, we need to have land because land offers us not just a space where to grow our own food, but a sense of dignity and a sense of belonging. We are very lucky because um, one of my mentors and Ross Norton, she um, sold her house in London and bought this property that um, I helped manage and develop in mid Wales, right in the border, in the edge of the Snowdonian National Park. It's a 450-year-old inn, um, which we used as a sanctuary center to bring people of refugee and migrant backgrounds, people seeking as asylum, people who are seeking the you know sanctuary to have access to land, to come and see what most middle-class white people do, which is actually, you know, come to the countryside, go walking, go and enjoy the rivers, the lakes, do wild swimming, you know, hiking, go to the beautiful Cumbrian Sea, which is so amazing and so beautiful, um, explore um, glacial lakes, but also engage with what is going on here because Wales is very, Wales is a very complex place as mm -hmm. an outsider, as an incomer, but also as a non-white incomer. Um, I have been able to use my lenses to really see the complexities of this place. Because Wales, uh, I would say that Wales is the, has been the first experiment of the English in terms of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And um, the people here have been, colonized in a in a horrible way really they were their language was forbidden and i can relate to that because as i said to you i come from a nation of people that are no longer there the pijao nation was extinct was by the spaniards and the first thing that they attacked was our language our culture and then they they told the rest of the world that we were cannibals that needed to be destroyed so, Javier, you mentioned belonging um, a few times there, and I think you referenced that we can look at land spiritually, we can look at it politically, we can, you know, we can look at it practically, emotionally, and so on. Um, and in this episode, we're kind of looking at what it means to belong um, to land, um, and it follows our previous episode where we actually looked at movement and people that perhaps don't seem to belong to any land and kind of, you know, like you said about yourself, maybe living a more nomadic life, but you are actually trying to give people a sense of, you know, to, to give people a sense of belonging in the work that you do. Um, but what, what does it mean to belong to somewhere? You know, like, what does that actually mean? You know, is that a legal thing? Um, is it an ownership thing? You know, is it again a more, is it a spiritual thing? Is it an emotional thing? You know, or is it, is it more than that? What is it? What does it mean to belong to land? When you talk about belonging and when you talk about uh, land, you have to take into account the different political um, processes that have come out in history. And I think... Um, for the Welsh people here, their land is their belonging. For, for peasant people, and I can see it everywhere in the world, their land is a culture. The way that you inhabit land becomes culture. And, and the way that the culture affects you uh, is, is intrinsic in what you do every day. It's how you wake up, how you treat your animals, how you grow food, how you look after a piece of a plot. Um, 
and, and that creates belonging. I think there is something that is uh, intrinsically human to want to belong to something and feel part of something. Um, rituals are very important because the ritual of eating together, the ritual of drumming together, the ritual of dancing together, which is something that we do here in our center a lot, that creates belonging. So belonging is not attached to the property or something, it's rather attached to being together and to relate as human beings, um, to, to re reclaim our humanity by being able to do the most basic things that humans do together. And I think, um, unfortunately, one of the things that I see here in the West, especially here in Britain, is that people have been educated to believe that capitalism and the way and the relationships that capitalism creates that stuff about producing and selling your time for money is the normal thing mm -hmm. is the norm and i think the only something that has been going on for 500 years really and that is really killing everybody because now when we try to create rituals to belong and to be together um i keep hearing lots of people especially in the West, white people that they need their own private spaces, that they, they need their own little spaces to feel safe, that they need, you know, where we are completely the opposite. We feel safe within a month with lots of people. We feel safe with as many people as we can. So I think belonging is not, it's, it's nothing attached to, to having land, mm -hmm. rather it's, how you are inhabit a space together and how together you can relate to each other as human beings. So you've just said actually, yeah, it, it's not about ownership. Um, it goes beyond that. It's, a, it's about um, shared humanity. It's about not just physically what land we're on, but what we do on it and what we do on it together as opposed to who it physically belongs to and maybe legally belongs to and so on. But you, um, you work mainly with um with people at the moment who have been displaced in some way you know who i guess in in maybe in very literal terms don't own any land and don't perhaps right now you know technically belong to you know have not maybe felt that they belong to a certain piece of land for some time right and we're seeing that well we were always seeing it but i mean as the time of recording this podcast we're very very much seeing this issue kind of again of of how many people actually and in, globally internationally now probably more people don't seem to actually have land and belong to land compared to people that do right so you know by no means is it just like a norm or um an obvious part of our human experience that we own land and we get to kind of occupy land so in working with people that are seeking um refuge or asylum in your case in wales um young people in particular um we we do get the mainstream narrative that maybe suggests that people choose to come here, you know, for our land or for our resources, you know, that that people sort of um, that some that they, you know, it's just that they would like they actually just they, they want more and they're coming here to take something or, you know, to claim something because perhaps what we have is considered superior or the land we have is considered superior or the resources we have or so on. But what is your experience of even maybe just 
the psychological or the emotional process people go through when they then finally do arrive somewhere and they perhaps are now trying to figure out how to belong there and like is it actually I mean for anyone listening who maybe knows less about this is it that people are simply just saying I would like to live somewhere better so I'm gonna I I, I mean I'm choosing to go somewhere else to try and acquire more um or what is what process do people go through when when they arrive is it is it relief is it gratitude is it anger is it disappointment you know do they arrive and go what am I doing here or do they arrive and go brilliant I've reached a promised land like what 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 feel what feeling do you get what what do you see I've been in this country for the past 1995 I've been here almost 25 26 years and to be honest with you when I am outside of the spaces I inhabit, where I belong, like the center here, I don't feel welcome and I haven't felt welcome myself. And this has been the experience of most of the people that I work with, who have been thousands of people that have I have been in touch with in this past 20 something years of community work. And, and and, they, and we go through phases, you know, when you are coming over as a person who is seeking refuge and you come here, you are quiet and you don't want to make too much noise and you are grateful because you arrive and you feel safe. And in one way or another, because of the welfare system and that, um, there are advantages of coming here because you do... Um, you do probably perhaps get a little house where to be, and then you get 39 pounds a week to survive on. And um, but it's it's very hostile. It's not like um it's not like that's great. Very soon you start realizing that this is really bad, actually. That the fact that you come, especially if you are seeking asylum and you are not allowed to work, you start feeling that. 30 pounds a week for clothing, food, transportation, and all of that. And then you can, not, you can only go and do easels, which are, I'm sorry, rubbish. Um, that you start realizing very soon that actually that you are not very well off, that in fact you are very poor. And, that, and then you start, re and then when you start learning English, especially young people who learn English faster than our parents, because our parents kind of, our parents' generation kind of go through the gratitude phase, and sometimes they stay on the gratitude phase, and they keep telling you, "Be quiet, don't be noisy, don't don't do too much noise." The British are gonna get angry. The white people are gonna get angry, you know. But we we because we are young people and we become politically aware and we become aware, we start realizing actually, wait a minute, I also I'm also a human. I got rights, and I want to work and I want to study. And if you are taking those rights away from me, and then I don't feel human. I feel less of a human and I start getting angry. And that's been my case. And that's been the case of many other people that I have met, especially young people, that very soon after they start realizing that this place is not very welcoming. Also, there is another thing, you know, another phenomenon that I have encountered is, um, you know, we are sold back in our countries uh, this idea of the European dream. 
of the UK dream. You come here and immediately you are going to have some type of status and money and richness and this and that. And very soon, most of us realize that that's not true, that you come here and that you actually struggle a lot, that perhaps you were better off where you were, you know, that you perhaps back home is a bit better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I got lots of people that have come from very middle class places that have to come of adapt to a very poor working class life here. And um, because that kind of goes down the drain, the whole class divide as well, especially with migrants, completely diffuses. You know, it, it completely kind of, I know doctors and uh, I know engineers and I know civil engineers working cleaning toilets. It is, it is very interesting because um, I think the far right in this country have, have sold the working class white people the idea that uh, someone is coming to take their stuff when they haven't got anything either. Because that's the other point, they haven't got it. They're also living in poverty. But the political far-right political parties and conservative parties have actually made a quite a good job of telling people that uh, somehow what they don't have is being threatened. And I think it's becoming more and more evident by the day, especially with Brexit, with the pandemic, now with the war on Russia and Ukraine, that people are becoming more and more poor in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and one thing that I have to say is that, um, you know, there is always a question of resilience. Who is more resilient than who? Because when you come from a war area, where you come seeking refuge here, when you, you are very resourceful, and you end up actually being very resilient to this kind of stuff because we know it. We come from wars. We know what a war looks like. We know what violence looks like. So in a way, we learn to navigate the system and learn to navigate working spheres much better than even the locals. Yeah. You know, so it's an interesting thing. I think there is many, many uh, shades to this. I definitely um, find this. So we both work with um, young people, mainly young people um, who are are seeking asylum in the UK um, or have been granted maybe asylum in the UK, but are still kind of in that in that process. And you know, um, I see it down here in London. You're working with it up in Wales. Having said that, almost everything you've said is pretty similar. Like actually, you know, you realise again that some of these experiences are obviously very very universal, um, but definitely quite often a sense of real almost loss and disappointment that they face when they get here and they have sacrificed so much to get here and it doesn't live up to the image they've been sold or you know the the dreams like you say and actually maybe materially they might get to access certain things they didn't have back home, but then they really start to question what they've left behind. And if that is literally as simple as family or connection or community or, you know, a a sort of culture or humanity that you can relate to, right? And as you say, they go from maybe being in a place where they are at least cared for or maybe respected more to a place where they really are not. And so that the losses, even though we think of people think of the gains, the losses are immense. And I and, and I feel like you're literally echoing the same thing. But with that actually, and you know, in terms of what people are leaving behind and what they enter, um, our relationship to land, I guess, differs quite a lot depending on also whether we are de- like living in a more rural 
environment or an uh, or a more urban environment right and um you you kind of referenced that, that earlier and some of the like capitalist dreams and the European dreams. And I think we do think of big cities and, you know, getting somewhere like London full of opportunity. And um, that's what the young people I work with come into, I guess. They enter a very, very urban area. You're working in a much more rural area. And I, I'm interested to hear like what we, there is an image of young people that they sort of only you know, um, recognize or respect or value kind of urban life, right? Or that, you know, youth culture is somewhat synonymous with urban culture and that, you know, that, that, that that's where young people want to be and that's what's considered cool and that they actually are very disconnected from certain ideas of like connection to land. But actually a lot of them have come from quite rural areas when they when they come to the UK. And I'm just interested to hear your, like we we see it from this side, what is your experience like do young people again get there and are they hoping for something more urban are they hoping for a different kind of european or capitalist dream than what they come into or actually is it familiar for them and you know does it remind them of home or you know do you feel that their youth makes any difference to how they connect to that most of the people that we work with we bring here and the reason why we bring them here is because, as you might know, the dispersal system do not put people seeking refuge in affluent areas. Mid Wales is very affluent in many ways. I mean, there's, there's quite there's pockets of poverty in certain places, but um, in relationship to London, Hull, I lived in Hull, you know, North East. England, so lots of poverty there, lots of working class white people in poverty there, children, and we was quite amazed. I was amazed. You know, you, you, you kind of think, uh, well, the UK, such a great place. Then you see all this poverty and you just realize, oh my goodness, actually it's not, it's not quite what they promote. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, London is, my, London is like another country, right? I mean, you go down south and that's where all the money is. So it is like another country. It's all shiny mm -hmm. and, and bling bling and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but the young people that I work with um, who comes from cities like Hull, like Manchester, Birmingham and Wrexham, it's, it's different. They, they haven't had the London experience yet. So they don't really know what, uh, what, what that looks like. And, and these cities, they, they do have the normal kind of high streets and things like that. And people do kind of buy a little bit into that kind of lifestyle. But it's very difficult to get into it because uh, you don't have as much money to be able to participate in it, you know? When we bring people here, people fall in love to these places straight away and they don't want to leave. And the reason why they don't want to leave is because as soon as they see the mountains, the rivers, the lakes, they say, this is like home. This looks just like home, and it's incredible. This is Wales, you know, it's cold, and sometimes it's gloomy and wet. Today is beautiful, shiny, and it can be such a beautiful place. They come here and they literally say, you know, I feel at home. Many people start telling their stories, you know. I used to live in a place that looked like that mountain, or I used to live in a place that have a lake like that one, or I used to swim in a river like that one. And, you know, um, people, something changes in people. And you know, because of the, all the shortages and because of the cuts 
and because of the government taking the money away, there is less. You know, we have two, it's sad to say, but two of the outdoor centers in here, almost next to us, have been closed down in the past three years. And these were centers that specialized in bringing young children from London to have experience. One of them was owned by Louisian Council, and it was closed down because they could no longer afford to have it. You know, so all of these things have been closing down. So there is not much things going on for young people. But for lots of the people that we work here, um, when they come and they come from these bleak cities that I call, I'm sorry, my offense someone, but they are very bleak. You know, they find so much beauty and so much to do here because we engage people in programs. Mm -hmm. People don't come here just to sit down and play ping pong and pool. They really get to do things, you know, they engage on riddles and reading circles. They engage on, on a bit of critical education. They're engaged on, to, they, we, we train them how to work with other young people. So people get in, start doing things and they love it. You know, we got the young people that we work from Wrexham, they can't wait to come here every week. They travel two hours by bus from North Wales to come here to work for three days. You know, they come and they engage and they do lots of stuff. And, and they can't wait, you know, they just come and they, they want to be here. I think it's, um, you know, you referenced earlier, like all the things that kind of give us a sense of shared humanity and, you know, and, and you guys, you know, clearly, you know, you draw, you know, you, you do the food, you know, you do the cooking together, you do art, you do filmmaking, you do music, you do drumming, you do all these things that are part of like a sort of human experience, right? And I know that you, you know, you kind of reference them as like, it being a way that we can kind of reclaim our humanity and dignity, as well as land being a way that we can reclaim our humanity mm. and dignity. So clearly they are to use, you know, it's, it's a holistic experience, right? Our lives are not compartmentalized into just our physical needs and our emotional needs and our spiritual needs. It's kind of like, it's a, it's a holistic thing. And I guess if you are giving those things, then people don't need the big cities per se, right? Because I don't necessarily, you know, it's not like we just go, you know, the big cities may have been misrepresented as being desirable purely because of the kind of capitalist dream. But if, if it's more just because that's where you meet people and that's where there is activity and that's where there is things happening, then of course, if you take that to the countryside, then you've kind of hit all, <laughs> you've hit all fronts, right? You've kind of covered your bases. And I guess for young people, um, I do feel there can be a real sort of misrepresentation and demonization that they are just that they're superficial or that they don't grasp those depths of life, but they're, you know, obviously just as complex as the rest of us. And if you give them a fulfilled, fulfilled life, they will recognize it. Um, and as you said earlier, these people are so resilient because of what they've done to get here. So mm -hmm. they do want the most out of it when they do get here because they've sacrificed a lot for that. Um, which I, it's very interesting to hear you reference that it, it's so nuanced because you might have even people within the UK having very, very different experiences, right? You might even have people moving between cities here in the country as well as from outside of the UK and to the UK. And that, you know, you, like you said earlier, actually this, this idea that this is where people are prosperous and outside of the UK is where they're not is also completely incorrect. You know, you have all, you have so much poverty here in the UK that it's not just a given that you get here and you have land or access to land. 
I think it's actually, I, I'm also not originally from the UK. And, and so sometimes, you, you know, you maybe don't, I actually maybe knew less about, you know, the complexities of the UK than I did about, you know, the world. And, and then when I started working um, in London, but within social policy issues, and I traveled to a lot of the UK to visit programs and evaluate them and so on. And I was shocked by some of the destitution that I witnessed in the UK I was it was really mind-blowing for me actually and again that disconnect between as you say London feeling like a different world like people's experience of of being miles apart from what life in London was like and 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 the fact that obviously then all decisions are made down here and so on doesn't help that but um I'm quite mindful of you know we've discussed a lot of things but um if people listening um, are, and I really, I'm sure they are, <laughs> inspired or mobilized, like they're realizing the complexity around issues of, of land justice and rights to land and equality and so on, or if they're simply just excited by what you do and what they've heard you speak about, what are some tangible steps people can take you know if someone is not a veteran activist and has not been fighting for land justice their whole life maybe they're hearing about some of these issues for the first time um what do you feel people can do here and now let's say in the uk context if even if they don't have much resource or knowledge or so on to either support your cause or the maybe land justice more broadly like any thoughts I think it is very important that we that we have dialogue, that we talk. And I think uh, you don't need much money to be able to create a space where you invite others to, to speak mm-hmm. and ask each other questions about what we want, where, where we see the world that we are inhabiting, going through, what are the solutions. I believe, and I was trained on this by civil rights activists, like such as Curtis Mohammed. He was a civil rights activist from Black Panther as well, from the civil rights movement in the United States. You know, he used to say, there is a genius in every one of us. And all we need to do is create the spaces for this genius to emerge and to, to really listen to each other. Everybody, and I have this, I have proven this time and time again. When you create a respectful circle of people who sits together, who looks at each other, who gives each other the same amount of time and the same respect to talk, when you don't, when you when you do the most, especially people like me, to listen rather than to talk, you know, like you discover diamonds in every single person in the room. You know, people have so much things to say based on their experience based on what they have lived you know people have uh, people have knowledge and we need to acknowledge that knowledge is not just created in the universities knowledge is created every day in every human interaction and you know accompany that with food food and and that concept of commensality the art of eating together the art of of merrymaking together by cooking and eating together. If we can do that, you know, with a good circle and good discussions, we, start, we can start changing things, changing ourselves, changing our surroundings, organizing, mobilizing. You know, I think it, it, it's, 
sometimes we've been sold the idea that if we don't have money, we cannot do anything. But we have ourselves, we have our tongues, we have our mouth, we have our heads. You know, and there is always parks, there's always cafes, there's always community spaces where you can come and inhabit. And I think we need to use, use much better use of our community spaces. I think there is too much ping pong and pool in the community spaces. <laughs> I've never actually meant to, uh, interviewed someone who's spoken so much about ping pong and pool. It feels like it's I really left that, you traumatized. You know, that stuff, youth work have become limited. Yeah, yeah. When a youth worker brings a, a group of young people and puts them in a place that has ping pong and pool and leaves them there to ping pong and pool, he's a mediocre. He or she doesn't know how to work with young people. Mm -hmm. that, oh, you know, you have to bring the young people to spaces where you challenge people through dialogue. Yeah. Really getting, asking the question, what do you want to do with your life? I have so many people. And now in my, I am on my 40s. And I started doing this work when I was in my 20s. And I go young people now that I work as children, as, as young teenagers, who now are adults who have come, have come to me and have said, you know what, have you were the first person who asked me what I wanted to do? Never before asked me that. And that question really made me think critically about my life. That, that doesn't require um, big amounts of money. That requires mm -hmm. just a little bit of humanity, you know? I think we need to we need to build relationships. You know, relationships are so important. Solidarity is important as long as there is relationships being created. Don't help me if you don't want to be my friend. Hmm. Don't help me if you don't want to struggle with me. If you want to struggle with me, and then the help becomes karam. You know, it becomes something that has to do with us together, struggling together. And so, Javier, we um, we ask this um, of every person that does this podcast um, as we kind of wrap up. But um, when, if ever, do you think your work will no longer be needed? We need to learn to inhabit different spaces as we grow old. You know, um, growing old is compulsory, as my <laughs> one of my mentors used to say, but growing up is not. Mm. So if you can keep on being a child in your spirit, you can mm. inhabit many spaces as old as you are, like my wonderful Laura Villegas, my mentor and my teacher and my one of my great inspirations. Um, you know, you, you can keep on inhabiting the spaces, but what you need to learn to do, I think, as you become an elder, is to inhabit the elder space. Elders are at the moment in dem on demand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we need critical elders. We need people who actually are capable of helping us think through things. And I think we all need to move into these spaces. I think as I become older, what I want to do is to start moving into spaces where I uh, I can just basically support someone if they need my support, but not go there and impose myself on people. Mm -hmm. Rather have me like a book, you know, that you can come and have a reference from and then sure. go on and do your work. I think we need to create the space so that the 
new generations, the young people can inhabit places of power. I believe that anyone above 60 should not be in politics. You know, the world should be run by young people, you know, by the, by the people who are right now inhabiting that reality. I had my time and I did it. I need to leave the space for the young people to do it. So leading on quite nicely from Javier's interview there, where he spoke about wanting practical solutions to designing communities, I'm speaking to Andre Reed, and that's exactly what Andre is about. Andre is a designer, researcher and strategist based in Warsaw, which is a town in the West Midlands of England. He's the founder of an organisation called Kayondo, which is a design research studio that explores how we might create more sustainable, joyful and equitable spaces to live and work in by weaving together deep partnerships between people and place. In his work, he aims to reinvigorate communities who fail to see themselves reflected in the spaces that they live in, contributing to a higher sense of belonging and purpose. And he believes that by investing in people, people can then go on to invest in places. So to do this, he works not only with communities, but also as a strategic partner with local authorities and sector-based cultural, arts, health and educational institutions to produce programmes, workshops and events which foster greater community cohesion, as well as designing, researching and advocating to challenge the future of societies and explore possible new ways of designing the world. So that all sounds like really big, grand things, but actually what I really loved about talking to Andre was how practical and energized he was around actions. So yeah, have a listen to what Andre has to say about how we might belong to a place. Belonging is being able to shape the world in the way that you feel your purpose ties you to. And I feel a lot of people in the world right now really struggle to find that 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 essence, that power to create change. We we look for power in the sense of like commodities or in lifestyles, but actually it's more about finding that inner sanctum and that that belonging and that connection with not just community, but the things that we enjoy right together, the relationships, the activities, the experiences that we create. Belonging is being able to create those experiences from the heart and feel truly and deeply connected to them. I really, really love that definition. And I, I couldn't agree more with what you said when you said once you have belonging, purpose naturally finds itself. Because for me anyway, belonging and an understanding of self is the answer to so many of the sort of ills that we have in society from like youth violence to fly to yeah. thing to everything. I really yeah. believe if people had a sense of who they are, where they've come from, and also their rooting in the space that they are now, I really think that, um, yeah, the world would be a different place, especially the UK where we have um, <laughs> a lot of people that maybe don't know where they've come from and who they are, um, or at least have lost that slightly. But based on, based on that definition you've given then, who would you say that land currently belongs to? Does it belong to all of us? Um, is it universally owned and shaped? Or 
is it currently in the hands of some people, the few? Oh, so my honest view is that land is unowned. <laughs> it's not owned by anybody, but we we steward the land, we hold the land, we occupy it for a period of time. We respect it, it's a relationship. It's like we don't own people, right? So the land is neither owned, but we try to take dominion of the land and that's a rhetoric that humans, not necessarily all humans, um, but a lot of Western societies have generally looked at and a lot of societies today have started to adopt and this is why we have different nations, different places, different countries, all of that. Honestly, um, I think when it comes to our relationship to land, um, you don't need to feel a sense of ownership, but you do need to, you need to feel a sense of agency. And it goes back to that same thing. Can I actually do something here? Can I actually enact my will in this space? Um, this is where I, I think design comes in. Now, essentially, a lot of people see design as like maybe an aesthetic thing or um, where we're creating something of beauty just because it looks nice, it appeals to a certain taste or flavor. But for me, design is about intention. And intention is like a precursor to like your purpose, your belonging, right? So when, when you have your purpose, you set an intention for what you see the world can be and how you want to experience the world and how you want to create experiences. Um, essentially being able to be in a place and make changes and shape that place and shape those relationships and those experiences. That's the relationship we have to the land. It's being able to, to nurture and utilize the land, but not use it. I really like that actually, because um, so our previous series just before this one was all about climate justice. And in that we were exploring the notion of um, rejuvenation. Um, so not just sort of this notion that's popular at the moment of sustainability and sustaining what is, but actually having this codependent relationship with the land where we're actually putting into it as well as taking from it. And the sense that, yeah, we don't own the land. It's sort of just where we are and we should have this beneficial yeah. relationship with it. <laughs> so I really, I really love that. And I was nodding along, although people can't see that. <laughs> um, okay, I really, I really do want to... Um, explore more about how Kyondo does this design. But first, um, if what I'm understanding from what you said then is that it's not necessarily about physical space, I guess, because what's interesting for me is the episode that came before this one was all about land and movement. So we spoke to um, someone from the traveler community and we also spoke to someone who represented sort of diasporic communities and you yourself have yeah. told us that you come from a diasporic yeah. community. Um, so it was really interesting for me then to think about identity and a sense of belonging, but not rooted to necessarily like a physical space, um, but more yeah. like the idea of being belonging to land in general, like maybe land is community, maybe land is nature, maybe, but it's not like necessarily like, okay, I belong to Brixton or I belong to... <laughs> um, exactly. Those things help people create an identity, but identities like that can shift at any time, there'll be a point where you might want, like you could lose your home and then what happens? Then you need to move. I'm probably the worst person to, to talk about this because I would love to live bi-coastally. It's one of my goals in life is to, to be able to navigate and live within different parts of the world. And the part that roots me, that makes me believe that's possible is by building relationships. And those relationships, no matter where I go in the world, I want to be able to shape the world and my experiences the way that 
um, I feel my purpose leads me to. So let's let's get a little bit practical. Can we get into it? <laughs> yeah, let's get a little bit practical then. Um, you've spoken about so many concepts that really interested me. Um, you spoke about yeah. design being about intention and not aesthetic, and I love that um, that notion. Yeah. You spoke about creating something that reflects us all, building relationships. So with Kionda, um, you're the founder, which you've told us, and yeah. You've described that it's all about weaving deep connections between people and place. Can you sort of expand on this? Um, how, why, what, where, how do you do this? Um, oh, I'm um, going to... What do you <laughs> mean to connect people to place? So, like, I'd have to give you a bit of a story about Kyondo and how it's got to this point as well. Um, just because in the realist sense, like, I started the company from, like, the heart, the idea of like, how do we build those relationships? How do we like, how do we help people feel more connected to where they are? And it started with rooting in, this is a location. This is, this is where I'm from. What does that mean? And as I've gone through that journey of exploring that, um, exploring identity with pe- with different groups, I, exploring um, how people access land and their ideas for the things they have around them and the way those ideas are policed or controlled or fear around who has ownership of those things and what will happen if we alter that. It's, there's a lot of natural things we want to do as humans that we kind of pull ourselves back from, right? So essentially the journey started with designing products and working with people that had low incomes that really wanted to transform their homes. They couldn't afford to to pay for an expensive designer but they wanted things that were practical and made sense and I started to understand people's relationships like family and like those kind of families relationships to the objects that they had the sentimentality but also the desire for commodity and certain lifestyles and what does that mean um and then there was gaps in knowledge about where things came from such and I call this stuff the invisible infrastructure things like manufacturing things like um economics these things exist as intangible things that we interact with all the time but we don't know really how much impact they have on our world so when we look at objects we might see them as commodities but we build very deep relationships with those things um at the same time there's a lack of understanding about where things come from so we have problems around this um, recycling and waste in cities, right? And so from working with people and designing spaces, um, I started to move into asking uh, kind of why people don't know about the circular economy. What is the, um, the real worldview on sustainability or green thinking and all of that? What is that? What does it really mean to the day-to-day household, right? The everyday person. I spent a lot of time essentially working with different community groups and hubs and working with groups and developing workshops on um, recycling, upcycling, going into the neighborhood, exploring local areas, exploring local architecture, history, heritage, and getting people to really connect with the places that they're in. Not just the stories amongst friends, but actually the buildings, the, the land itself, what was, and, and those those conversations, those workshops, those experiences that I would hold would build curiosity. People would start to think about what um, was possible in the places they live beyond the permission structures, beyond who owns this and who owns what. We were just being creative and it became almost like a, um, 
like create a canvas for like the imagination like just give people that space to explore their wildest dreams and ideas and as i've gone through that journey i've started to understand it's not so much about the actual physical objects as you so rightly put it's about people themselves where are people at what are their stories what happens when you change the context and this is where investing in people started to become a central aspect and i realized i'm not so much just a design company but an incubator um with the vision of saying if we can invest in those people they can then bring those same ideas that same level of curiosity imagination desire and purpose and enhance places we can still have an identity about say brixton or warsaw or any place in the world but it essentially comes from communities it essentially comes from people their heart their purpose their desires and it's how do you enhance that i live in warsaw lived here for the last um five years i moved here from birmingham and um even though I was living in Warsaw, I was working in London, I was working in Manchester, Bristol, Leeds, I was working in all these other places, building communities there. And Warsaw is a town that just needed it and everybody knows it and everyone avoids it. So I said, let me work closer to home and let's prove this concept, right? Let's say what happens when you, when you do focus in on a place where people have rooted an identity. And then you start to learn about those people there and you start to build resource and you start to create that kind of canvas for them to start to reimagine what that place might look like and feel like and align themselves with a purpose. And Warsaw doesn't have any creative facilities or spaces that are open to the public. There's many smaller institutions that are doing running community groups, but there's no public space that's owned or feels owned or feels like um people can belong in there and just be there and be creative and have ideas and have conversations so one of the first things was to do was to find a space and this is like again comes back to like that idea of belonging we do find belonging in being able to occupy a place being able to feel like you can have control in that in that area so we found a space very central in the town center that had been neglected right in, in the civic center it's opposite the town hall it's everywhere what is meant to represent the kind of public square where people's opinions their purpose comes to light we started engaging the public and essentially what happened is people's needs came to the forefront and we opened up the space for all kinds of community groups whether it was for food banks whether it was for um, mental health um, group meetings, whether it was for workshops to do with discrimination. We just started to host spaces for conversations and those conversations being essentially incubation spaces for the community to develop further ideas and build deeper relationships and think about what could happen next. Um, and I then work with other artists, architects, scientists, and we're starting to build essentially an organization that because it's so interdisciplinary we can start to approach the problem of like creating space and belonging and that idea generation from many different angles 
Um, I'm gone on for a while. I'm not sure if I've answered the question. <laughs> you've answered, you've answered um, a lot of my questions in one, which is perfect. On <laughs> but it also means that I was sitting there scribbling like, oh gosh, don't want to forget to ask that. Don't wanna... So I've got a few like, things that I want to ask. Um, Sorry, because there's a lot to no, yeah. no, but it was so, it was really interesting actually just to sit and listen. Um, and I'll split my response into two. The first yeah. was something that really struck me, which is sort of the power of imagination and um, exploration in the yeah. movement towards any sort of social change. And it's something that we constantly come up against no matter what topic we're exploring. It's just the notion, giving people space to imagine something different. And um, yeah. I think you said something like imagining like their wildest dreams, or I can't remember how you phrased it, yeah. but just putting people in that mindset where they imagine that things can be different or that, that they can have a part in shaping how things are. Um, like when, when we have discussions, for example, about alternatives to capitalism, that's one of mm. the biggest barriers is people actually don't identify that it could be any different. We're not taught that in yeah. school. In school, we're not taught to challenge and to be critical. We're taught to sort of retain information and past that there's definite rights and definite wrongs and all of these notions that are sort of opposing to imagination and exploration um so i guess my first part of my response or question i wanted to ask you is um how do you how do you sort of break down these barriers and get people into a place where they are sort of imagining exploring openly and also how do you remove maybe some barriers to allow this to be open to anyone because another thing is one of the biggest barriers for example that I can think of is purely time and capacity so I oh, think wow. one of the biggest tricks that our society has put us into is um, always being busy so we don't even have time to think of alternatives because we're just trying to survive this reality um, even ourselves finding time to connect for this interview yeah. <laughs> was challenging, you know. Um, so as much as I enjoy having like these discussions on like a theoretical level, I know that practically it's really difficult. So I'd be, I'd yeah. love to know how you sort of get you people into that space. I am a black man and I'm living in Warsaw and Warsaw is traditionally a white working class town. And so there's already barriers to how people perceive the notion of me owning a space, the idea is Andre owns a space, a black man owns a space, not that it's a community space. I had to get through those barriers first. And that's again about how do we build those relationships and how do we create that? There's a lot of, there's a lot of politics that I couldn't even <laughs> finish in this call <laughs> to get through to talk, well, if it was to talk about navigating that and how we're still navigating that now. But, um, when we're looking at different ethnic groups, different class structures and how they actually um, work together in society generally, we usually see division. Whereas in these spaces, we actually require them to come together in order for it to actually work. Um, one of the main issues is like affordability and affordability comes like in the form of time and money. And I think also enthusiasm and enthusiasm can be taken from people um, when they have no time or money, it's a, it's a very difficult balance. Um, and I think that is really the main class battle that we're dealing with. It's time, money and enthusiasm and who has it and at what time. Um, how do we do it? Um, it's always been an open invitation. It's always been, we create groups. It starts with the most practical thing, WhatsApp or Signal 
Um, and we create groups around the topics of interest and we allow people the, the, the power to bring people in. The issues always, as people know with these kind of groups, people often feel policed and will feel like they have to police them because of discrimination or types of views and values. But what we actually find is when you, when you find the purpose, actually you don't see any of that. It's very rare when you start to see those politics come out. And when they do come out, they're actually self-regulated within the group um, because the purpose kind of, it becomes the superordinate goal. And by creating those experiments, we kind of call them like, can we sessions? Can we? And then the proposal, can we do this? We would create opportunities through doing for people to build relationships through trying out something by prototyping an idea. That's kind of the way that we brought together different groups, different identities. And in the doing, you feel like you're making an actual change, an actual difference. It's a step closer. And so you start to feel a sense of belonging, like I can now do something. Yes, we can do that. And as again, how do you then look at that relationship and that kind of model that we're building there and look at how that fits in um, and builds relationships with other parts of the world. So in very, very much in, in kind of the way I work is always about finding out what people are really good at and what they really love and what they're really trying to aspire towards and enhancing that and building that. And like you said, rejuvenating that energy, giving them time <laughs> and like trying to build that resource, build those partnerships with those same sector-based organizations or their local authorities or their governments or their funding bodies that would then see that value and, in, and, and, and nurture it and invest in it so that they can continue to invest in where they live. I must admit, as someone that's born, bred, based in London, it's so easy to become very London-centric and you're thinking of the UK, but I went to yeah. university in Cornwall, so I'm very aware that London oh, is nice. not at all yeah. <laughs> representative. Cornwall's very different as well. Exactly, of the yeah. UK. Um, and I'm, I must admit my ignorance to Warsaw, it, my knowledge pretty much extends to the fact that I know Georgia Smith was from there. <laughs> yeah, I know, very ignorant, very ignorant. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to, to talk to you in that context because I wonder how it is to exist outside of these big cities, um, London for sure, maybe Manchester, maybe Birmingham, maybe Liverpool, that get all of this investment or at least all of this conversation. How does it feel to be there? How does it feel to exist there? How does it feel to try and create change there on like a, I guess, a policy level even? Honestly, I think it's an opportunity. Um, when I came in, like, I might have lived in Warsaw for five years, but I didn't interact here. I didn't engage here as much as I did until I made that decision, that intention to say, I am going to work closer to home. I'm going to try and make a change here. And like, it's funny, like you say that, like, because it's a smaller town, hey, within, I think about four weeks of like beginning the conversation and making it a public conversation before anything had happened. I was being introduced to like Georgia Smith's family and I'm being introduced to like um, the local authorities like regeneration person because they themselves hadn't heard anyone from the local area that had the passion to push it forward. But then when you have the conversations with the people that had been here for 10, 20 years, families had been here for generations, they always had that conversation internally but they didn't have it externally because there was a lack of almost confidence or belief that it would come to fruition. They had so many conversations within the first few months of the project about 
failed dreams. And um, I guess this is my kind of real belief for design is like good design is when you give someone that dream that they kind of gave up on. You know, it's that thing where you thought, I wish I could have had that, but you're never going to speak on it again. And then when someone says, no, you can have that, you're like, oh, <laughs> I can have that. And that's kind of where you want to be able to take things, right? And so I find it really energizing to say that I could kind of make that intention and say, hey, I'm going to work closer to home and say, hey, guys, I believe in Warsaw. I believe there's an abundance of potential here. Um, I'm investing here. I'm making that public. I want others to invest in this space as well. Um, it brought a lot of energy back to the town. And actually, since then, there's been quite a lot of conversation about investment into Warsaw, from Heritage England to the West Midlands Combined Authority, to um, Arts Council, um, to a lot of other sector-based organizations have recognized it as a, as a town that has missed out on opportunities. It's a forgotten about town as with many others around the UK. And so I think these smaller areas are actually, they're the best opportunities and the, the people that usually capitalize on them are developers and with huge amounts of capital and finance. I'm talking about regeneration from the inside out. So we have to start the conversations now with people before that happens or whilst it's happening, because let's be honest, these guys have resource. They have the, they have the, um, the mechanisms to create um, physical changes to the urban space very quickly. If we're not building those relationships now, they'll, they'll be despondent. They won't respond to what's going on. So we need to build them before the things are, are actually set in stone. And that's essentially what a lot of my work's been about. It's been, I've done a, I've done a lot less physical design of products and spaces and a lot more design in terms of let's intentionally build these relationships between these groups. Let's intentionally have these conversations about this topic. You know, um, let's talk about the canals and how we can reimagine people's use on them. And it starts from a very personal place, which is what I kind of really love about my work. Um, an example of that, let's say with the canals is, um, I've been exploring, I've been like following a um, Norwegian company that had developed a recycled um, flat pack canoe um, called Onak. And I thought this would be great to bring, not just only to the UK, but to a place like um, Warsaw, where they've got this abundance of canal infrastructure that goes unused. And there's a lot of young people and people that had never been on the water ever. And so the first thing I did when I um, did manage to get my hands on one, <laughs> unfolded it in the, in the main area of the canal, in the town center, in front of everybody, just like a normal day, just rocked up, unfolded it and just let people just <laughs> peek from the shadows and ask what's going on. And within an hour, and getting it onto the water took me a, a bit of a while the first time around to set it up. I had families and parents coming to me say, can you take my son or my child on the water? Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and I have a go. <laughs> I like, um, I had to, by the next week, buy a ton of life jackets <laughs> because I was getting like four or five-year-olds and I had to do courses and get licenses. <laughs> and then was having conversations about water taxis. You know, and then that's a whole completely different conversation. It's just by giving people the freedom to think they could actually do that. I did it. 
I, I did get all the licenses and like kind of permissions from Canal and Rivers Trust before, but to everyone that sees me come and rock up, they don't know the permission structure. So they're saying, can I do this? And that's the question I want them to ask, can I? It's almost mm -hmm. a kind of rebellion against the power structure because the people in power also don't know if that's allowed, but they're curious to see if it, it, it creates a good experience. And in a small town like Warsaw, because it is a small town and they do aspire to be something greater, more enriched and more like rejuvenated, it's an opportunity, it actually was welcomed more than it was pushed away. And I think that's the opportunity of working in smaller places that are more kind of, that have more of like an intimate relationship with the communities. People are more um, open to ideas that story yeah. um, reminds me of my co-host, who's definitely the more maverick of the two of us. And um, I remember one of the first times I met her, um, she said to me, Fisaya, you need to ask more for forgiveness than you do for permission. <laughs> she said, you ask for permission too much. I'd rather ask for to do something and then ask for forgiveness. <laughs> and that story yeah. really reminds me of that saying. Um, Andre, <laughs> I feel like we yeah. could talk literally all evening. Um, so I'm going to yeah. pick my favorite two questions to end on. Cool. Um, I know it's time. <laughs> thank you so much because you've just given me it's so right. much food for thought and also so much energy, which is really nice and refreshing. Um, one thing I'm going to sneak in there just because I'm interested in the arts, it's my passion, and I'm interested in the arts in conjunction with social change is just. I know that you involve a lot of the arts in what you do, filmmaking, photography, creative arts. Why do you think that these are important elements when we're talking about social change, when we're talking about belonging, when we're talking about place and land? Um, real short answer is we all need and want new experiences. That's all we ever desire. We wake up each day, what is the experience I'm having today? What am I having tomorrow? And the arts is like the embodiment of culture, belonging, purpose, and like ideas all in one space, right? You watch a series and you're like, it's a world that you, you don't necessarily live in, but it's familiar and it gives you ideas about the world and ideas about yourself and, and also about other people. It's that interaction that inspires us. And it's that, I think the arts provide that platform for inspiration and that, that builds the rest. Um, that allows people, like I said, back to purpose to say, actually, maybe I can, you know, and, and that's why we use the arts. Um, I see science in the same way. It's just an opportunity to look at things differently um, and allow people to like kind of like pick at the brain a little bit and just say, does this really work? Like the same way you spoke about permission and <laughs> like forgiveness, you have to kind of deconstruct your own belief systems and reconstruct them and be willing to do that daily because that learning experience is what allows us to really create worlds that are not just sustainable but are meaningful and purposeful and that we truly can trust you know um i think when we become beholden to one single identity and one single thing it's actually a fragile mindset for the identity and we need to have a level of flexibility and growth. And so the arts provide that moving bar of, no, actually, it could be like this. Actually, the world is much wider than you actually thought it was yesterday. So if people are like me, they're feeling energized by our conversation, inspired, they want to act on these issues, 
but also slightly overwhelmed with where to start, we always try and end episodes on some really practical, tangible things that people can do on both a micro level, so in their own personal realms every day, a small thing that they can change or start doing, but also on a macro level, maybe there are organizations they can support, maybe there's something they can do at work. What would you say are sort of first steps that people can take to um, work on this issue? Easy. Or even first to support is, your work? I think it's, it's, I said it's easy, but there's introverts and extroverts out there. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think the, the the kind of starting point is to start a conversation. It is literally the beginning of all of that. Start it with your friends, have like, get over that small anxiety block about do people understand my ideas or like what I'm thinking and just actually spend the time listening and asking the questions and finding the connection points. Um, that always breeds ideas. I've seen it happen millions of times, whether people are consider themselves creatives or not it starts the train the train rolling on a practical level i would say engage in hobbies and engage in arts and engage in different activities i think that also starts people's agent um like building people's agency and idea that they can shape and create change so i do believe in investing in in the creatives in creative spaces or experiencing different things whether it's traveling whether it's um starting a new hobby and then for people that are like working like in this sector that are working um, as like either place-based practitioners or creatives or are looking at social change, then I would definitely just connect with, I really believe in just following your purpose. So I do believe in just doing the research and like finding organizations that you resonate with and just, and like, again, starting those conversations because that's all it takes a genuine an honest introduction about who you are and what you believe in is enough. You don't need to have a huge intention about what happens next. You just need to be curious enough to find out. And you'd be, you'd be surprised what you're drawn into and where the world takes you. And that's, that's kind of where you'll start to build kind of a new idea of maybe what you can do and how you can kind of bring those worlds together. There's a term that um, like the Japanese use called Ikigai you know like you bring your you've got your practical sense of purpose you've got your like the things that you love the things that you're good at and like um how the world sees you and how do you bring that all together to make it practical and sustainable and a way of life and so i i, I heavily like believe in like you have to bring those worlds together and find where it fits and it's not a fast process it's a slow process but you have to enjoy that process of just and like indulge in it and grow with it. And just to end then, this is, this is often the question that people find hardest to answer, um, but actually is quite a simple question. And that is, when will your work no longer be needed, if ever? Um, I think everyone that works for some form oh, yeah. of social change hopefully has the ambition that their work will at some point not be needed because like they've achieved question. it. Um, so for you, Andre, when is that, if ever? I agree with you. And like, I have this conversation daily. <laughs> we like, when will it end? Um, so I don't think people are ever going to not need new experiences. I do feel like that bar will continue to continue to move. Um, but in terms of where my work is no longer needed, um, you know, because like I said earlier, I'm working on a very place-based level. I think there is a point in which things are kind of nurtured enough 
to sustain themselves. So I don't exactly see myself working in the same place forever. There is a point. I'm not sure what that point is, but it's like knowing how long should the grass grow before it gets cut. You know, it's like knowing, um, do you prune this or do you let it wild? You know, um, I'm really a big like fan of just observing, being patient, listening and just seeing where things take it. Um, I think locally, the point which I do see at this point is when the point I want to get to in Warsaw is to create a creative um, um, quarter. That's kind of one of my aims. And that creative quarter isn't a traditional creative quarter. It's not going to be exactly what you see in like Bristol or in like London, but it will be something unique to this place. And what will define it will be the way those relationships, how people um, build new spaces, build new ideas, build new creative things, not just locally, but hopefully internationally and inspire like the world. And that's kind of the stage you want it to be on. You don't want to just know Warsaw for Georgia Smith. You want to know it for all the other creative artists and all the other creative places that are happening um, that have occurred and come out of this place. And um, that's what I want to see. And that's what I want to highlight and make sure happens before I move on to like another area and do that same deep work. So many things that I want to jump off of, but I'm going to pass the mic to you, Mona. What stood out to you the most this week? I feel it was very much something around, you know, broadening that term belonging um, and, you know, actually like belonging, we might very immediately think of it as, as like something possessive, you know, when we own things and obviously in this society, that's obviously, that's always the way that we think of it. Um, and we've already had a fair amount of critique of our current society and, and, and you know, capitalist models of ownership and so on in all of our um, seasons and already in this, in this episode as well. But again, this idea that um, like actually moving completely away from what you might think the word belonging first refers to in terms of ownership and actually not about land belonging to us and who does it belong to and how do we fight over it and how do we claim it but actually what it means for us emotionally to belong somewhere and how that goes way beyond again the idea of four walls and a ceiling and so on and actually for both of our guests how much it was about the way we feel there and the way we connect there and how we build community there and what things are physically happening and taking place in a space, right? So it's not just my bed is here, I sleep here, I eat here, or even a bit, you know, even I grow my vegetables here, I, I work from here, but actually how do we all as humans connect in this space and therefore create an emotional attachment to it? Um, and especially, for example, the work that Javier does, that is literally for people who you might think don't belong there, right? It's, it's actually for people who've come from thousands of miles away and who are having to completely reinvent their lives and the climate might be alien to them, the language, the food, everything could feel really alien to them. So how do you then make them feel like they belong and mm. feel safe? Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I loved how Andre put it when he said, when it comes to land, you don't have to feel a sense of ownership or you shouldn't feel a sense of ownership over it, but you should feel a sense of agency. Mm. And I think that's what it is. It's another it? t-shirt right yeah. there. <laughs> Honestly, my t-shirt line, guys. Untelevised.com slash t-shirt. T-shirt slogans, absolutely. Um, um, but yeah, that sense that, yeah, we don't own it, but we do want to feel a sense of agency within it and how important that is to feeling like, you belong in a space. And I think 
um, Javier sort of spoke about the opposite of that, isn't it? Which is when people don't feel agency. And he even spoke about the fact that a lot of the rhetoric that is drummed up to sort of oppose um, migration, um, refugees, it relies on agency as well, but pitting refugees and migrants and um, asylum seekers as taking other people's agency away which is what was interesting for me in talking to Andre as well I feel like I'm going in circles but because Andre is working with communities that are very disenfranchised he spoke a lot about how he does a lot of groundwork to actually bond them together and see their commonalities because often working class people and marginalized people are pitted against one another rather than actually we've got this joint experience of having our agency taken away from us in some way um so actually yeah there's there's basically more that tie people together than bond them apart and um just that idea of agency um was really strong for me in this one yeah, and you know what, um, Andre's uh, sort of canoeing exp um, experiment and actually just that simple concept that, you know what, um, you know, people will have heard this phrase, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission. But I think there's something in that, that boldness of saying, but I belong here. I actually don't think I should have had to go and ask permission to be on this water or be on this land. I'm going to do the thing I want to do here. And probably once I do it, you'll realize it just isn't even that crazy. And other people might even enjoy it and link to it. But if we're asking permission, we're already saying it's not mine and I don't belong here and I'm not supposed to be here. So again, that agency and that self-belief, um, and the way that for Javier, there was really something around all the things that feel like very collective and universal human experiences, be they food, music, art, like they bring these things to the space to almost show this is what binds us together. Like this actually we all enjoy, this we all relate to, this will make us all feel something regardless of where we're from. Here are again some very basic some very primal human experiences and if that's what you put in the space then you feel like you can belong there and you can connect I mean I've never heard someone have quite so much like um, vengeance against yeah. pool and <laughs> ping pong like Javier spoke so much about how we've just completely like set the bar so low for what mm. you might do for us with a space point. actually right? right every youth club just stick a pool table in there that's all young people need we don't raise the bar we don't challenge them we don't give them more to physically do in the space and yeah I, I, he literally feel i felt like he would have destroyed every pool table in wales if he could have but <laughs> it was a very interesting manifestation right that it's about the fact that we set the bar so low for what the space can be and i think andre was similar right like what spaces yeah. could actually be yeah, and I think outside of sort of the mental freedom that just acting gives you, I mean, not that we're encouraging you all to do illegal activity. We, we, we can't be held responsible. No. Listen <laughs> at your own risk, guys. <laughs> outside of the mental freedom, what Andre's example showed is that actually that's also where the solutions are and where the innovation is and where all... Because by doing that, by going onto the canals... He's having conversations with the local government about canal travel. You know, it led to something actually tangible and tangible change. And it's that experimentation that allowed for that. If he had probably gone and asked and said, can I do this? I've got this. But they would have probably said no, or it would have taken years or this would. Mm -hmm. But just through doing that, it's now actually resulted in direct change, you know. And I think, yeah, there was just so much 
tangibility to that but what was interesting for me then also was how he spoke about the barriers and we know that often time and money can be barriers for people contributing to these conversations but actually how he highlighted enthusiasm and how enthusiasm is linked to time and money because I often sit in conversations via zoom these days where um people repeat the term hard to reach and it's always bothered me I've always thought what does that mean and it's funny because I was talking to a colleague about it and they said it's funny that um, councils always talk about hard to reach because they always find you when it's time for council tax or car fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not hard to reach. You're not hard to reach then. But when it's engaging you in conversation, suddenly people are hard to reach. But I think it's really valid actually to think why people might not want to engage with you when their enthusiasm is lost. And that's not any criticism on the person. It's a criticism on the fact that We chip away at people so much that they no longer feel infused enough about life to want to contribute to the places around them, you know. Which is then a very convenient way the places become derelict um, and then they're just, you know, and then it becomes a really good justification for saying, oh, well, I guess we need to, um, you know, like basically eradicate this building or build build a new development on top because it's not being used anyway. And, you know, we, you know, and, and so on. So. Yeah, I think like actually um, our previous episode, um, we spoke a bit about just this idea again of like broadening our imagination and we keep coming back to this, like how do we challenge our own ideas of what life should be and what, you know, the mainstream ideas that are constantly put upon us? How do we actually consider space something that we wouldn't be guarding and protecting just for ourselves, but opening up so that it actually gives us so much more than just a roof and, you know, a place to sleep and a place to protect from the cold outside or whatever, but it gives us everything that life is kind of meant to be. Um, And in the case of um, Javier, you know, their project has come out of the fact that actually an individual sort of sold their home in in London, I, I believe, and therefore with the money was able to buy something much bigger and open that up to public and actually I recently went to stay with um, some friends of friends who'd done the same thing actually they'd sold a place in London and with that they've bought a massive bit of land in Wales Um, and now because they have that land they're just inviting people in particular people who they know are doing a lot of social justice work and therefore might be burning out and feeling tired they're just offering them a space to escape and get away and reset so that's that's actually, I mean, not a lot of people have a place to sell in the first place, but for those who do, that's already a way that you can be so creative with how you use your space, actually. Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, that shows how, because sometimes these concepts can feel big and away from ourselves. Um, we don't have personal acres. I'm not the lead of a design agency. But actually, in our own remits, as we often say, we all do have opportunities I think to contribute to similar practices to take sort of yeah the practice and apply it to ourselves and so I loved what um, Andre said about design not being aesthetic it's coming to this very aesthetic place where everything looks nice and but actually design is about the process of um, giving people permission to dream and we can all look in our own lives how we can create that process and create that environment and be inclusive and encourage imagination. Um, I I would say no matter what your career, um, you probably can look at ways you can implement that. Um, Maybe less so in some than others, but 
then outside of that in your personal conversations in all these things I think we can analyze yeah what resources we have available and how we can sort of take both Javier and um, Andre's energy um, and philosophies and apply them to our own own worlds. And we've done um, a previous episodes and in former series on sort of cooperative housing, on slightly more alternative community building, um, which again, we will link you to as well as resources on stuff like what it actually means to own community assets um, or how people can mobilize together and actually purchase and own things as a collective because none of us actually maybe can alone. And that there actually are probably more loopholes in the laws and policies out there than we realize for some how claiming land um, and we've even in our time we spent some time with a project a few years ago called um, called Granville Community Kitchen which was a community project in London running a community kitchen where the council started threatening to sort of take their premises off them but they were able to argue and fight for the need for those premises and keep them and there are examples of these kinds of successes around we're just not told about them because obviously we don't when people don't want us to have that agency and I'm thinking now even of where we started in Nijmegen and there were so many examples of spaces that had been um, used for sort of communal um, resource mm -hmm. so there was the community kitchen that we went to where you could turn up and eat for free or and just um, pay what you could and all of these or ways go, that, or go do the dishes off yeah exactly yeah exactly, yeah. Pay, yeah exactly you can contribute in different ways and it's reminded me of what Andre said around taking over spaces that are there exist but are disused look at our high streets many of our high streets are falling into disrepair maybe there's an idea you have where you can propose let me take over this space and at least make it active and use it in this way um so yeah definitely recognizing our own agency and seeing how we can use that agency for community i would say is um, a great takeaway from and just asking for forgiveness, not permission. Maybe not even for forgiveness. Just don't ask and just see how it goes. <laughs> and you can say Mona when when, yes. when you're in your when you're in your jail cell. <laughs> you can reference this podcast in your defence. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There you go. Um, I might need to get myself some better legal grounding before I start giving this kind of advice. I'm going to speak to my legal advisor. But. Um, yes. So. Um, yeah. As always. Um, we will link to all those things. Please do send us your thoughts and your feedback. We'd really love to hear from you. And actually, do you know of projects? Do you know of examples? Have you come across collective ownership? Have you come across examples in your own circles or networks of people who found an interesting way of coming together and belonging and taking over a space? We'd really love to hear from you and we will share them. Um, and you can then find them and find the things that we share by following us at untelevised underscore TV on social media and also subscribing to this, this podcast so that you get the alerts about future episodes. That is a good way for us to basically just share this resource. Um, you can also always email us at talktountelevised at gmail.com and it's the digit two. Um, also check out New Economics Foundation and Shared Assets who we're producing this with as this is a big part of their work and the resources that they've, you know, created and collected over time. Yeah, I think, I think that's it for this one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, yeah, it's always hard to know whether we've just totally overwhelmed people. Let us know if we've overwhelmed you and we will do our best to underwhelm you next time. <laughs> yeah, you've got two more episodes yeah. to be disappointed in us. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for listening, guys. And yeah, we'll be speaking to you again soon. Mm. Take care. Call me a dreamer, idealistic believer. Put my head in a cloud. I don't want to come down from my feet. 
are planning on starting around. 